0: Hello, everyone. My name is Maria Mota, and I'm a scientist and executive director of Instituto de Medicina Molecular in Lisbon, Portugal. Uh, I'm also an invited professor at the Medical School of University of Lisbon. I'm here today to present to you some of the most recent and exciting results that we have in the lab. And I hope you enjoy uh, the talk. Basically, I'm going to talk about malaria and the parasite that causes it. Is called Plasmodium and is a protozoan parasite. So, let me start to introduce this parasite basically by telling you about its life cycle. This parasite is really... is transmitted to a human host by a mosquito, Anopheles mosquito, that transmits this parasite that obligatory needs to go to liver cells and replicates into 1,000 new parasites. When these thousands of new parasites are really, released really in the bloodstream, they really, you know, start to infect red blood cells. And soon after, they have two ways. Or they continue to infect red blood cells. Or basically, they are prepared to be then transmitted to the mosquito again. Basically, in these continuous cycles inside of the red blood cells, every parasite that infects the red blood cells multiplies into 20, 30 new parasites. And basically, soon you will have thousands and thousands of infected red blood cells, and all this would cause... the burst of red blood cells would cause the symptoms associated with malaria. But some of these parasites... and very important and recent research has shown that trigger by environmental cues basically can really go into a different type of stage, and is what we call the presexual stages. Our gametocytes already define female and male gametocytes, that then, when taken up by another mosquito, and basically, you know, when a mosquito comes and bites this person, these stages are really taken up in a blood meal, and then inside of the mosquito, female and male gametocytes are transformed in uh, male and female gametes, they fuse make an egg, what we call an orkinete, and then this orkinete is a basic a hostess that replicates in thousands of new parasites that will infect the salivary glands of this mosquito, and in approximately 2 weeks, they will be ready to transmit to a new host. So, as you can see, this is an extremely complex life cycle. It involves two different hosts. In fact, the human host is probably an intermediate host. The definitive host is really the mosquito. That is also the vector. It's quite complex. And what I'm going to talk to you today is of the stage that is really responsible to uh, the symptoms associated... that is responsible uh, for the symptoms that are associated with disease. And in this this is the blood stage of infection, as I mentioned to you before. When the parasite infects red blood cells, every 48 hours, for the most dangerous uh, plasmodi species that infect humans, plasmodium falciparum... but, you know, different species would have different uh, cycles, that goes from 24 hours in rodents to other species that would have 72 hours. But, you know, they will really be in these cycles of infecting red blood cells. And in a quite synchronous way, uh, basically, these parasites then burst red blood cells and infect new red blood cells. And so, the first symptoms that are associated with malaria are, in fact, this destruction of red blood cells and, obviously, the level of inflammation that they cause. But indeed, the vast majority of people, and we have 200 million new infections these days, of new infections of malaria worldwide every year, only less than half a million, approximately 400,000 children, die uh, per year of malaria. So, the vast majority of people don't die. So, malaria many times presents as a kind of benignant type of disease, but other times develops into severe disease. And one question that has been, you know, uh, posed by many different labs, probably for more than a century now, is why in some cases you have developed severe disease and others you don't. And, in fact, some of the cases we know why it is. We know that, for example, sickle cell re- disorder, people that have a mutation in hemoglobin A, they are really protected from the severe forms of the disease. And so, probably, that was the reason why so a severe, for, uh, a severe disease really has been established in humans and has been maintained in humans, because they also confer protection to another severe disease. And we know that some of factors are involved. But, in fact, what I want to bring to you here is some Aspects that we can use in the lab experimentally, and we can use rodent models of infection to really show that you know is a lot of different aspects that work together to really, you know, define what is going to be a benign or a severe uh, disease. In fact, malaria itself is not one single disease, it's presented with different types of syndromes, and probably is a multiple-system disease driven by parasite and host factors. So, let me exemplify uh, some of these. So, basically, uh, just to give you an example how, uh, you know, parasite factors really can define what... uh, the type of disease or how is the outcome of disease. Here, you have an example of one mouse strain Uh, C57 black 6 mice in the lab, infected with two different strains of uh, Plasmodium. They are exactly the same species, Plasmodium bergue, but they are slightly different strains. One is called ANCA, the other one is called K173. And basically, what you show here is that the outcome of infection is completely different. Both... in both situations, mice succumb to the disease. But in the first case, what you would have is a neurological syndrome. Basically, you have brain edema, hemorrhages, and mouse dyes within seven to nine days with, you know, a neurological syndrome. On the other hand, when this the same mouse, exactly the same mouse, but basically is infected with different strain, what happens now is that there is no neurological syndrome being developed. Instead, what you have is acute lung injury and respiratory distress that really kills the mice. And so, you can really say that here are really parasite factors, because the host is really, you know, the same, that really, you know, are in the of this. But in fact, we also know and we have published that indeed, how host factors are important for this. In fact, in this aspect here, we can now use a different mouse. So instead of using C57 black 6 mouse, we can now use DBA mice. And now, using the same strain that in black 6 mice was causing this neurological syndrome, now this parasite strain here that, uh, you know, w- w- in this mouse doesn't cause anymore the neurological syndrome, but again, causes acute lung injury. So both parasite and those factors play a a role here and probably talk to each other to really uh, dictate the outcome of infection. And these are probably uh, very good examples in that respect. But the question that I'm bringing here is something that we have been posing to ourselves for a few years now. Is that how much can environmental cues affect infection? So, besides these parasite and host factors, how the environment would really dictate the outcome of infection. And we have been trying to approach this question in many different ways, and I'm going to bring you today one of them. And basically, what we have decided to do, it was to think about nutrition. We are talking a parasitic infection. A parasite, by definition, depends on its host for its own resources. And, of course, nutrition is really an important resource for parasite survival. So, basically, we ask how changing the diet would affect the outcome of infection. And in this particular aspect that I'm bringing here today to you, we are using a particular model of changing the amount of calories that mouse intake every day, but without changing any nutrients in the diet. So basically, what you would have here is mice in the control mice in our animal houses that basically are in what we call ad libitum conditions. What is this? Basically, ad-libitant condition is that the mouse has a healthy diet, uh, appropriate to a rodent, but, in fact, this diet is available there throughout all the time and in unlimited amounts. So, these mice, these control mice, basically, they eat as much they want, whenever they want. On the opposite, we have another group that we call the caloric restriction group. And basically, these mice, what we do is we have exactly the same diet as the control group, but in these ones now, what we reduce is the amount of food that we provide every day. We reduce 30% of the amount of food. So, they only eat 70% of what the control group would eat uh, every day. I want to call your attention to the fact that this is under nutrition because we are comparing to a control group, but is without malnutrition at all. And this is very important. There is no nutrients that are missing. In fact, I want to bring you the concept that, you know, studied by many other groups, these models are used... caloric, restricted, uh, caloric restriction models are used by many different research groups around the world, in fact, to study many aspects of aging, longevity, etc. And in fact, in our hands and in many groups around the world, uh, the mice under caloric restriction, they reduce their weight, approximately 20 to 25% of their weight, immediately, as soon as they start this new regimen, but then they maintain this weight throughout their life, which is contrary to the ad libutan mouse. In this case, what happens is that, basically, the mice are growing in size and in weight throughout their lives. The control mice live up to two years in our animal houses. These mice live happily up to three years of their life. So, really, we are not talking about malnutrition, and this is a very important point. Another very important point that I want to make is the fact that we never infect these mice while we are adapting them to the caloric restriction. So, when they are transitioning... in transition to uh, adult age, basically, we put a group of caloric restriction in this caloric restriction regimen, and we wait for 2 to 3 weeks until we infect them, to make sure that they have adapted and they are not under stress because they change in in the uh, diet regimen. Basically, we have these two groups. I already mentioned to you that we are not using them when... in the adaptation period, both of them have been already adapted, either in adlibit and a caloric restriction, for 2-3 weeks. And then, we infect them with plasmodic parasites. And either we start infection by mosquito bite, as a natural infection, or just by a blood transfusion with infected red blood cells. And if we use a parasite that expresses luciferase and so emits light, basically, we we can have an idea of the parasite load in the entire uh, mouse body. And, as you can see here very clearly, is that the mouse that is in libitum conditions has a much higher parasite load than the mouse that is in caloric restriction. And this was... the first observation is extremely um, consistent and is very quickly. As soon as we inject these uh, infected red blood cells uh, into the mice, basically, in a few cycles, we start to see this very significant uh, difference in parasite load. So, of course, then, we thought exactly what is going on? Why do we have higher parasite load in mice that are in unlimited conditions versus mice that are in caloric restrictions? And it took uh, several months for the postdoctoral fellow, Liliana Mancio Silva, that really was, you know, responsible response for this project to understand exactly what is going on. But in the end, the response was very simple. As soon as the parasite enters red blood cells, the parasite w- multiplies in a certain number of replicating parasites, as I showed to you in the life cycle. But the parasites entering in red blood cells of the caloric-restricted mouse basically replicating to a lower number of parasites in each cycle than the ones entering the uh, red blood cells of another living mouse. Okay? This was quantified and was significantly different. And so... Basically, the caloric restriction seems to impact the parasite load by affecting its replication. Of course, this was uh, showing that indeed you could have one parasite, the same genetic background inside the same genetic background of the host, but just because the availability of nutrients was higher or lower, the parasite was replicating into higher or lower numbers of parasites. Most interestingly, we were able to show this without using our in-vivo system. So, basically, we were able to take sera from rodents in either adlibid or caloric restrictions, and just by growing the parasites for one cycle in vitro, basically, we were able to show that immediately on that first cycle the parasites starts to replicate into lower number of uh, parasites. Interestingly, because we were able to do this in vitro, of course, we then could test not only Plasmodium berganc or Plasmodium oele that basically infect rodents, but we could use also Plasmodium species that infect humans. And we used for Plasmodium falciparum and showed that, indeed, incubation with... from serum zero... from caloric-restricted animals really was causing a, a decrease in replication uh, of the parasite. So, that, of course, leads... To then a very important question, and you know, two I think very distinct type hypos- hypotheses. So, is this replication of the parasite inside of the, uh, red blood cells lower because something is missing, a nutrient, a group of nutrients is missing, so the parasite is struggling, cannot make it, or in fact is not that the parasite is still not struggling, the parasite is still able to you know replicate, but because it says the ability to sense the environment detects that there is a difference and should replicate uh, less. So, the concept here is that... is this really uh, active process of the parasite, active decision, or instead is a very passive and something is missing and parasites struggle and cannot make it uh, in same numbers that as normally it does. So, this brings the really uh, important question. Is plasmodium able to sense and response to host nutritional changes to uh, nutrient availability. And so, how to approach this? Of course, we... when we have this type of data, we go home, we study other organisms, and we start to realize that from plants to yeast, from yeast to mammalian cells, basically, you really have... every single organism is able to sense the environment. It's part of life. The, your ability to sense the environment and really adapt to it before you struggle. And so, usually, all these organisms have a, a way of making active decisions before being in situations that are really difficult for these organisms. So, it's so must not be different. But, in fact, what happened, it was also that, you know, through... Throughout all these organisms, from yeast, uh, you know, that is also a single cell, eukaryotic cell, in plants, in mammals, you have pathways that are extremely highly conserved. So we thought plasmod genome must have these pathways. But in fact, when we looked at the plasmod genome, the, none of these canonical pathways seemed to be present in the genome. So we were in trouble exactly how, you know, to go uh, around it and how to find exactly what was going. On there. But one aspect that immediately when we were studying all these systems and all these conserved systems, that we realized is that in all these systems, kinases were really like the key molecules and it makes sense because it's something that you know the organisms need to be able to respond quickly and so need to be able to respond through signaling. So kinases are really key molecules in signaling, so this would make sense. So what we decided to do it was to do an unbiased approach. Uh, but at the same time, a uh, target for kinases. And basically, what Liliana has done, it was to do a screen using our in vitro system where we really, you know, show that incubation of infected red blood cells in with adlivant serum leads to a certain number of replicating parasites, but the same infected red blood cells incubated with caloric restricted serum really shows a decrease in the number of replicating parasites. And we did this for ANKA lines that are deficient in many different kinases. And our hypothesis it was that if we really found a molecule, a kinase, that was important for this response, then the parasite would not be able to mount this response and would replicate the same way, independently if it was in adlibitant or caloric restriction conditions. And indeed, when we were doing this screen, and this is a quite complicated uh, kind of graph, basically what you observe here in the y-axis is the number of replicating parasites that are merozoids, um, per infected red blood cell, per the mature parasite that is called schizont, in vitro, when is incubated with ad serum? On the uh, x-axis, basically what you have is the same type of measures, but when the parasites are incubated, uh, infected rebel cells are incubated in serum in caloric restriction conditions. As you can see in wild-type parasites, the wild-type r- parasites basically replicated in a higher number of replicating parasites in ad conditions than when they are in caloric restriction conditions, which we have shown before. So we did, no we used many different lines of Plasmodium berghei Anka that are deficient in different kinases, and answer was always that case. And, in fact, we found this one, the open green circle here, that basically it was a line that lacks one specific kinase, that was called kin, that basically produced exactly the same number of replicating parasites, independently if it was in non or caloric restriction conditions. Here, you have even a better quantification and, you know, more clear, that basically, this line really was producing the same number of merozoites or replicating parasites in each cycle. So we thought, okay, this must be a molecule that is really important for this response. So we went further to study this. We went to in vivo, and in fact, in vivo, what we show is that the parasite load that we quantify here by parasitemia and parasitemia is just a perc- percentage of infected pra- uh, red blood cells in circulation. Uh, as we have seen before, basically, when mice are infected with Plasmodium berghei wild-type parasites produce a certain level of parasitemia. If they are in mice in a caloric restriction, they produce a lower. Now, if we have the same mice, in the same type of conditions, but just infected with a line that doesn't have this kinase, the parasite was replicating in very similar ways. And... that were not significantly different. But obviously, an important control, it was to use this same line, that we introduced this gene again. This kinase then was... back then again. And again, they start to behave as wild-type parasites. Okay? So, then we f- thought, what exactly is the response of these parasites to adlibitant and caloric restrictions? And as you can see here, in this panel here, basically, wild-type parasites, they really have a response. They have genes that go up and down uh, when they are in different conditions, when they are unlimited versus, ad- versus caloric restriction. But the most interesting uh, part is that... Uh, parasite, the parasite line that was deficient on this kinase, basically, there was no response at all. Which s- seems to suggest that, indeed, uh, this kinase, c- called kin, controls the global parasite response to nutrient availability. And so, seems to really be a re- um, master regulator of this response. So, what is really this kinase? This kinase is a huge kinase, a 100 kilodalton kinase in plasmodium that doesn't present many similarities to anything, you know, in other organisms, is uh, quite conserved in plasmodium, different plasmodium species, in plasmodium falciparum, in plasmodium berghei, but as in the kinase domain itself, it has some limited homology to a family of kinases that are usually AMPK uh, family. AMPK stands for AMP-activated kinases, meaning that are kinases that are activated when AMP levels are high and atp are low. So when energy is low, basically this kinase is activated. It's also called has a different name, SNF1 in yeast, but both in yeast, in plants, and in mammals, there is quite conserved features of this kinase. Bosman doesn't have any of these conserved features, but it's true. That has some homology in the catalytic domain, and specifically a threonine that in another system needs to be phosphorylated to be activated is also concerned in plasmodium. So we thought, what about if we really mimic this phosphorylation of this threonine? What happened? to, uh, the parasite. And basically what we have done, it was just to have a parasite line that we just introduced a point mutation that allows to basically mimicking this threonine for sure relation. And when we did that, these parasites, this new parasite line starts to behave as if it was in caloric restriction, although it was in adulivitant conditions. Most interestingly, it was, we were, uh, uh it was possible to substitute a hist that was deficient in SNF1, in uh, the homologue of this AMPK in, in, in hist, we could substitute with the parasite gene if it was already with this point mutation that basically seems to mimic this phosphorylation, Meaning that, yes, there is a functional conservation of kin with SNF1 and AMPK, but probably the activation uh, means are very different, or the activation pathways might be quite different, because it seems that if we were using a version of this uh, uh, gene but uh, didn't have this point mutation, basically, we could not observe uh, the same uh, rescue of the uh, SNF1-depleted phenotype in yeast. So, basically, what I'm telling you here is that now you can have exactly the same parasite, with the same genetic background, okay? Being introduced in a host exactly with same genetic background, but now, because the environment is different and because the availability of nutrients is different, from one day to the next, this parasite has the ability to sense the environment and respond to it, and so, basically, actively make a decision to replicate into lower or higher number of parasites. Of course, if it replicates into lower number of parasites, you will have low parasitemia, low parasite load, and you have a higher probability of having uncomplicated malaria. On the other hand, if you have a parasite that simply replicates more, it becomes more virulent, too. You will have more high parasitivity, you have more... higher parasite load, and you have a high probability of developing severe malaria, as we have shown in uh, mouse uh, models. So, obviously, we don't feel that we want now to change the habits of the populations in Malaria and Dermicardias every day uh, waiting to uh, receive parasites. But by finding kin... by finding that the parasite really has this sensor and this regulator of this global response, we really can uh, modify and can really target this molecule and really manipulate it in a way that the parasite would feel that it's always in an environment poor in nutrients, which mimics the, the kind of poor environment in nutrients and would allow the parasite to transform... be transformed from a highly virulent parasite into a parasite that is more attenuated. And there is more time to respond with drugs that would kill the parasite or for our immune system... our own immune system to really target the parasite. So, basically, what we are proposing is a kind of chemical attenuation therapy that would bring the parasite and would transform the parasite into an attenuated uh, parasite. Of course, this is... uh, this is just a proof of principle and a kind of concept that the malaria parasite, as many other organisms, and probably all other organisms on Earth, are able to assess the environmental cues. We use nutrition and use the amount of uh, calories or the amount of energy available to really bring this as a kind of concept. but. I'm sure that different parasites would use different uh, types of ways of sensing and adapting to different, uh, to different environmental cues. And we have made a kind of very generalistic view of what are the strategies that we know for different parasites and how basically they respond, they sense and respond to different environmental cues. And one thing that we need always to uh, be sure is that we are all having dinner every day with our symbionts. They might be pathogenic, they might be parasites that cause disease, might be the ones that live with us all the time and even, you know, are quite uh, uh, good for our homeostasis, but in fact, we know that there is a crosstalk between what our cells and uh, how we respond to the presence of these organisms and themselves and their needs. And this is very important to have in mind. Of course, this study uh, that I'm showing to you here is just the tip of iceberg. How can we really understand... and, of course, bring us some good ways of targeting, or gives us a different target that we can target and probably make this parasites transfer these parasites are more attenuated, but also brings some kind of worry. Is this ability that these pathogens have to adapt to different environments and, of course, bring us the concept that different environments and different ways that we'll have to target them, they might have ways to go around it. So, finally, I want to thank that, uh, you know, throughout these years, uh, the funding agencies that have supported our work. And, of course, I want to bring here special attention to extremely talented postdoc that is starting soon uh, uh, her own research lab at Pasteur Institute, uh, Liliana Macius Silva, that was with us for several years and was able to really uh, make this uh, beautiful discovery and make prove this uh, uh, concept that indeed the malaria parasite has the ability to sense and adapt to the environment and to environmental cues, such as nutrition. And of course, I need to thank the entire and most recent team in our lab. And obviously, I can never forget, and we never forget in our team, that in spite of the fact that we work on specific... And very basic host-parasite interactions. We hope that one day uh, our knowledge will serve uh, something for the uh, human populations in endemic areas, and that raining season will fill everyone with joy and not with malaria parasites. Thank you very much.